This is Masonic Muscle episode 11. What's so important about Scotland and the origins of Freemasonry? What did the monks and masons eat in the 1300s? I want to share a couple of notes before I begin today. I've uh, finally logged down some interviews uh, for the month of July. A couple of members from uh, the Grand Lodge and some members from my very own lodge. And I imagine there will be more coming as uh, they begin to get the hang of it. Also, I've been listening to some more uh, Masonic podcasts, and, and I'm beginning to notice a shift in, in some of the questions that are being asked to the members coming on or non-members. Uh, this is a positive, in my opinion, uh, because the uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but it's kind of uh, where I wanted to go with it. And so it allowed me to, to uh, hear what they came up with, the questions they, they came up with, and the types of conversations that they began to have. So that was refreshing. I liked it. And finally, I have to say that everything I talk about on this podcast are my own opinions. And they do not represent Grand Lodge or anyone else's opinion, but my own. And I will say again that as speculative Masons, we are encouraged to, to speculate and to research and to do all of this uh, self-discovery. And then if we get the opportunity to share it, to share it with other people. Uh, the name of this podcast is obviously Masonic Muscle, and there is references to actual physical exercise and, and diet because we've been uh, you know, locked down in the pandemic. And now that the restrictions are easing up and we're getting out there again, uh, too many of us just spent the time not doing much physically, physical wise. And we have to, so I'm encouraging all of you to get out there, get some walking in, go weight lift, get some burpees in, uh, jumping jacks, push ups, squats, go get it so that you can begin to improve your level of fitness, increasing, you know, strengthening your Masonic muscle. All right, let us begin. So what have we been talking about? This is episode 11. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about Benedictine, Cistercian, and Templar monks, as well as the master freestone masons that were working hand in hand with these monks to help build their monasteries and also to build the king's castles and other stately edifices and a lot of other structures that we find all around Europe during that time in England and Scotland. Well, there had to have been someone who built them, and that was stonemasons, stonemasons guild. And a lot of times, the monks themselves were stonemasons, and they were actually out there physically getting the work done. We've talked about the mysterious Regis Manuscript of 1390. Who wrote it? Why does it associate Freemasonry and the seven liberal arts and sciences? Where do Masonic usages come from? Why were illiterate master freestone masons interested in the seven liberal arts and sciences and the power of the trivium? If they couldn't read and write, why were they you know, being introduced to this? Why, why were they being associated with this? We talked about other secret societies that were around during the 1300s. And finally, I read what author Anthony Sutton had to say about any theory of history that falls outside of a certain prescribed viewpoint. Remember that it is the victors who write history. And the victors are not always forthcoming. 
just like in the movie 300 when Xerxes says that when he tells King Leonidas that when he defeats him he's gonna go and burn all the temples that had any had any uh, evidence or written records of him he's gonna burn out the eyeballs of the priests or historians and so that so that nobody ever remembers who Leonidas was effectively erasing him from history but it kind of had the reverse effect because we are still talking about him now so what what uh, Anthony Sutton said about a prescribed history and if you begin to write something or investigate something and it begins to fall outside of that prescribed way of thinking uh, he he uh, you, you don't you, you get hammered you get uh, attacked right away and the people that are are you know tenured professors and what have you well they have a vested interest in continuing to protect us because that's their bread and butter they are not gonna they're not gonna buck the system so it is worth reading one more time what anthony sun had to say on this subject and he says this during the last 100 years any theory of history or historical evidence that falls outside a pattern established by the American Historical Association and the major foundations with their grant-making power has been attacked or rejected, not on the basis of any evidence presented, but on the basis of acceptability of the argument to the so-called Eastern liberal establishment and its official historical line. That is on page one from America's Secret Establishment. It is, uh, uh, the book is awesome. I read it years ago. I go back to it from time to time just to see my notes and refresh my memory. And when you take that into consideration, you begin to see how our perception of reality can be easily manipulated when certain facts of a situation is not presented to you. All right. So but but despite all of this, you can find it if you look hard enough. We still persist in thinking in one direction, mainly because we have not been taught to think critically, which is where the trivium comes in. Because the trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric is the key to helping us see the world for what it is. And it helps us to find truth no matter where it leads us. Having said all of that, we haven't talked about what were these monks and stonemasons eating during this time, all right? Because this is, this is very physically demanding labor especially uh, the guys in the quarries that, that were told to go and, and, and find the stones, cut them out of the wherever quarry it was in, and bring them and drag them to the work sites to be inspected and see if they can be used. So what were they eating? They had to have some kind of sustenance, right? And also the priests, because from what we've learned and what we've been exploring is that the Cistercian and Benedictine monks during this time in, in England and in Scotland, they were they were actively involved in the building of these of these monasteries, and you know some of them were actual stonemasons. Others were cooks, and and kind of like the military, they 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 each had their niche, but they went out there and worked. Especially the Cistercians, they believed in physical labor. They got out there and they tilled the soil and and what have you, and grew their own crops. So let's just get into that a little bit. And so, what were some of the things they ate? Well. Uh, bread you know bread because why i'm going to read a little bit 
from a nice little article that I that I found that really really just gives you the the meat of it. And it says, well, bread it was cheap. It's easy to produce and filling. Bread was a key part of most people during the medieval times, monks included. But not all bread was created equal. The grains used to make bread would vary depending upon the status of the individual it was produced for. It was not uncommon for the senior members of the religious community, such as the abbot, to eat higher quality, more expensive bread. This bread was usually made from finer, more processed flour. It was shaped into smaller loaves, usually for consumption by just one person. As far as we can tell, these would be somewhat similar to a modern white dinner roll. Senior members of the religious community and their guests would often eat higher quality foods. So I imagine when they say here, senior members of the religious community and their guests, they had to have included the masons because they, they were working with them day and night. And when they had their common meal, they had to have had the meal with them. And if not, you know, they would, uh, whatever they would make, they would, they would uh, go and hand it off to the Masons who had their own lodge, who had built a structure so they, they can be able to sit down and have meals uh, together during break times or at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day. The Cistercian Order, which we have been talking, talking about this whole time, established their first Scottish monastery at Melrose Abbey in 1136. So there we go, guys. What's the whole mystery behind uh, Scotland and the origins of Freemasonry. We're talking about 1136 and the Cistercian Order, who we've been talking about, who could have possibly influenced the actual ritual and, uh, you know, the ritual to receive a new fellow craft Mason, because that's who they were around. That's that's who these Masons that might not not have been Catholic or Cistercian, but they were working hand in hand with them. So there's a strong probability that because of what they saw going to mass and and how they uh if they were converts what ceremony they went through they they just naturally took the best of what they saw and practiced and went through and applied it to a ceremony to make a new fellow craft mason the cistercians also followed the rule of saint benedict who we've been talking about the benedictine monks but use a stricter version than the Benedictines. They were largely vegetarian and ate mostly plant-based foods. Exceptions were only made for the sick who were given meat or on feast days when fish and eggs might be eaten. Working was key to the Cistercian way of life. Monks and lay brothers at Scottish Cistercian abbeys such as uh, Glenluce, Dundrenan, Deer, and Sweetheart would have grown food at or near their abbey. Typical foods grown in Scotland in the medieval period would have included cabbage, turnips, carrots, peas, onions, and beans. Herbs were also important, both for culinary as well as medicinal uses. In contrast, many spices, including pepper, were not permitted as they were expensive and considered a luxury due to being transported long distances. So they had a pretty decent diet. They, they weren't like the rest of the of the peasants, right? Where it was just mainly porridge and they were malnourished. These guys weren't malnourished uh, to a certain extent. They, they were eating veggies and and on certain festive days, they would actually have meat, fish. And, and so you, you have to 
include the masons with them because they were work, especially if they were working on a monastery and working hand in hand with monks, they were having this, this dietary regimen as well. Were they accidental vegetarians? Let's see what this article has to say. Common thinking in medieval times was that humans were entitled to make use of all resources available to them. So voluntarily abstaining from meat was not common. But even outside of monasteries, the church limited the eating of meat. Many days of the year were fast days where meat was not permitted. The exact rules varied, often permitting the eating of fish and birds. Common dishes were variable and would have been made from what was available in the area at the time of year. Pottage, for example, was eaten by almost everyone in the medieval period. Similar to a super stew, it usually contained vegetables and grains. There, were, there was sometimes meat, but only if it was available. The result was that many medieval people, both in and out of religious orders, didn't eat meat every day. And another reason for that was that a lot of the land that they were living on was the king's land. And it was, it was not permitted to hunt on the king's land. So if they caught you killing a deer or, or any other animal, you know, that, that carried a, a high penalty because that was for the king and his family, not for you. So you had to be careful. So there's, there's some of the dietary uh, eating regimens and what, they, what, what it consisted of for these men during that time. They, uh, you know, they, they had to eat something to keep their strengths up. The physical requirements were demanding. The hours were long. These guys are dedicated especially if, if one of these uh, monasteries or castles was going to take 40, 50, 100 years to make, you were guaranteed work and your speciality paid off. So you actually, you know, you, you had a craft and you got paid well for it. And what, what about these medieval masons though? What, what you know, how, how were they structured? If, if we're talking about just, just, the, the masons themselves, the, the guild, not the secretive, you, you know, the secret society that, that everybody thinks about. Let's just, let's just break it down to, to the Stonemasons Guild and how they were structured. So let's read a little bit. Stone buildings and stonemasons went together in the Middle Ages. It took skill and ingenuity to produce beautiful buildings, many of which have stood for centuries. It also took planning and the use of sophisticated lifting equipment. Stone was an expensive material to use, even if it was quarried locally, and it needed skilled men to cut and shape it. Different groups of men worked with the stone needed for a castle, a cathedral, or a church. The stone had to be quarried first. Quarrymen were not masons. Their job was simply to get the stone for the masons to work on out of the ground. Usually, local stone was used, but occasionally stonewood could travel long distances, even from other countries. For Winchester Castle, for example, stone was brought from Sel Selborne, 18 miles away. The Isle of Wight, 30 miles, but half of them on water. And Hazelbury, 70 miles. And Cain, across the Channel in France. Transport costs, as well as the quality of the stone meant that stone brought from far away was very expensive. 
there were different classes of masons and the first two were the rough masons and the freemasons or the master free stone mason as we've learned the rough mason were unskilled and made the rubble walls which were often used where neither strength nor appearance was considered important rubble was a low grade of stone which could not be cut or shaped sometimes rubble walls were dressed so that an inner core of rubble was covered with smoothly cut and close fitting stones this photograph shows a rubber interior so a rubble i'm sorry rubble and it you, you know when you see it yeah it looks very crude and then it goes on to say freemasonry freemasons could cut freestone to make squared blocks ashlers as they're called or complex shapes this interior and exterior walls of Romsey Abbey pictured at the top of the post and below are made of cut stone. The Freemasons put the stones in place and carved the decorative parts of a building. Freemasons earned more than rough masons, but they were not at the top of the chain. And this is very important. They were not at the top of the chain. The master mason was in overall charge of the building site. He was the designer, engineer, and contractor. He was the man employed by the patron to be responsible for all the building work. There would be a contract between the master mason and the patron would set out what the master mason was to build and how much he would be paid for doing so. He designed the building and took on all the men he needed to get the job done. He was paid by the patron and in turn, paid all the other men employed on the building site. Some patrons wanted more of a say in the design than others, and some master masons seems to have reused design elements from one building to another. They might even have been employed specifically to incorporate something that they had done elsewhere and that the patron liked. Designs for decorative work were illustrated on a tracing board, and we, which is in masonry and freemasonry we still talk about this today the tracing board this was a plaster covered surface on the ground onto which the master mason would trace the full size design from this he made a wooden template for the freemason to use a pattern the mason worked in a lodge a wooden structure on the building site that provided some shelter while they worked on the stone it was also a place for them to eat and rest the stone, the cut stones were heavy. At ground level, they could be moved on wooden rollers, but getting them to the tops of ever-growing walls required more ingenuity. A pulley was used to lift the stones. Usually, this was done with the help of one or more men inside a treadmill. A hand winch could be used for small blocks of stone. Most buildings were designed using squares and circles. The master mason used simple geometry to work out the proportions with the compass and a square. He did not necessarily need to understand the mathematics behind his design. That's very important. The working season was usually from the feast of the purification of the Virgin or candle mass, 2nd of February, to All Saints Day, November 1st. At the end of the season, the work was covered, often with straw to protect it from the elements until the next season. Work stopped before temperatures fell below freezing as the mortar was useless once it had frozen. 
Medieval building techniques can be seen at the archaeological project at uh, uh, Gudalan, where a castle was being built using techniques from the 13th century. And it says here that the DVD Secrets of the Castle, which was filmed there, shows these techniques. So from this, what we gather is that they were definitely well organized. That there was definitely a head of whatever lodge was working at whatever site. And he spoke directly to the patron who was paying for all of this and, and wanted to share with that master of the lodge his thoughts, his ideas, his his design ideas and from there this these ideas were drawn on the trestle board so that the master of that lodge can share with the rest of his fellow craft masons and begin to work together so that the structure began to take shape you know leveling the ground and then squaring their work and making sure that the walls were plumb uh, and a lot of other terminologies that we still use today in Freemasonry. But this is this gives you a better idea of what they ate, uh, what's so important about Scotland and the origins of Freemasonry. We just saw that, that, that the Cistercians, you know, began somewhere around 1130 in Scotland and began building their monasteries there, that the stonemasons, obviously, they were working with the stonemasons. We learned about what they ate their their eating regimen was not not bad actually and the the lack of meat of eating meat every day probably had more of a positive effect than a negative especially if you're weightlifting and you're under the belief that you have to eat uh, you know so much so many ounces or grams of protein and you know in order to bulk up or or not or what, what have you you know, we're under the impression that we do have to eat meat. And maybe there is some scientific evidence that supports that. But if you listen to Jack LaLanne, Jack LaLanne was, for all intents and purposes, he was not a vegetarian because he stayed away from meat pretty much. He ate, he did eat fish, but uh, basically it was, you know, raw vegetables, as raw as you can get them, uh, raw fruits and uh, fish. So he got all of his nutrients from that. And on top of that, he had, he took his vitamins and, you know, he's out, he was outside. He worked out every day for two hours a day. And he said that, you know, he didn't like it. I just finished listening to another interview of his, one of his last ones before he passed away at 96 years old. He was 93, I think at the time. And he flat out admitted, he says that he, he hated it. He hated working out, but he loved the results. And he also said, something that is very very important to everybody listening and that is that anything worth having you have to work for it you're going to have to work for it hard and it was very interesting it was it, it not very interesting it was enlightening to hear Jack Delane say that he hated to work out every day but he loved the results I mean he came back he came right back around and said that and so he immediately nullified the I hate with I love the results. And so he eats better. He uh, he's not a strict vegetarian. These monks 
we're not strict vegetarians because there were certain times of the year that prescribed meat and fish. And so I imagine that these stonemasons that were working hand in hand with them were also following the same regimen uh, of eating. And, you know, that that would make sense. This is how they were able to keep up their strength. This is how they were able to continue day after day and work hours on end and during the season that they worked, right? Because it was from February to November, because after that it got too cold and then they had to battle the elements. So these guys, if they were the beginnings of what we know as Freemasonry today, there's a lot that we still don't know. And because of this, speculations abound. But some of us are afraid to speculate and really, really go outside the box because of what it entails. But remember, we are speculative masons now. So in speculating, what do we do? Do we speculate responsibly? What does that mean? To speculate means you're going, you're going to begin to look at things that are not necessarily on this side or that side. You're speculating. You're beginning to theorize. You're beginning to guess. And don't forget what Anthony Sutton said in his book in page one, that when you begin to find things that's outside of the realm of academia, because you're not part of that little group, they will begin to fight back and downplay whatever your findings are and just try to sweep it under the rug because there is a certain prescribed history that wants to continue to be pushed. And I believe that also includes something as controversial as Freemasonry. So with that being said, guys, that this is episode 11 of Masonic Muscle. Get out there and get in shape. You know where to go. You don't need any equipment, guys. I'm going to take away, just like Dan Pena says, I'm going to take away that last excuse that, that you have. I'm going to take away that last arrow in your quiver because, oh, you know, well, I'm going to go get a membership. Oh, I don't have any equipment. Oh, I need a, you don't need any of that, guys. I can tell you right now, you don't need any equipment. Go online, go on YouTube, look for those guys that do body weight workouts and you'll see that they don't, they don't take that as an excuse anymore. They just get out there. Start doing squats, start doing push-ups, start doing crunches, pull-ups. If you have an area to do pull-ups, it's not just push-ups, crunches, squats. And I guarantee that if you stick to it and you get and you and you continue to intensify it and progressively increase the resistance each and every single workout. And on top of that, begin to modify your eating habits where it's it's healthier for you. Drink more water, get better sleep. Get out there into the fresh air. I guarantee that you're going to have some amazing results, outstanding results. That's Masonic Muscle episode number 11. Get out there and get some.